Hey everyone, welcome back to Makers Radio. We are an indie podcast hosted by myself, Leonard Reese, who is a visual artist and designer working in New York City, and my good friend, a woodworker and furniture maker based in East Texas, Tyler Jones. You are listening to the epic conclusion of our phone conversation on the topic of color. We discuss some social aspects of color, uh, then Tyler breaks down a client piece that he's working on, and we kind of go on about the process of working with clients for a while. Um, but all around, really good conversation. I hope you enjoy it and get something out of it. Thanks for tuning in. of combinations of other of light frequency does that make any so sense like, wait wait so what are you saying so like maybe there is like one color of blue that somehow has like a natural like uh yeah divine uh resonance with with our human perception well yeah that is i guess that i i picked i'm about to start a blue piece which is why i picked that but it just it brought up an interesting train of thought to me yeah yeah i i think so and i think people have definitely thought about this before i mean are there colors that are better than other colors i mean going back to the music analogy um you know why why is c major such a very natural comfortable sounding chord um, and then why is why are other chords like um, like a B tritone so like nasty sounding? Yeah, and, yeah. And are I mean, there that, colors that are just naturally like nasty feeling to us? Yeah, I mean that that does roll straight into that, and there definitely are. You know, there's a lot of science looking into that. I think a lot of it is somewhat still dubious, but uh, you know, everybody's probably heard the old thing about. McDonald's picked its colors because the that orange and yellow make you feel hungry or something. Okay. Um, and then, but a little bit more science, I think, has gone into you know colors that calm. Uh, they use those. They can use those in some prisons. Uh, mm -hmm. Colors that. Uh, but then also some of those, you have to break that down into two categories. Um, some are just social constructs, and then some are innate biological constructs, and you got to sort of separate those. You know, I think that sheriff in uh, Arizona does a lot with his prisoners, making everything pink. You know, okay. but that's obviously that's a social construct. Is that like wait, it, why? It, 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 because it punishes them, or because it soothes them? Soothes soothes um, them. Well, I think he like made all their underwear pink, or no, they're like they're out their whole like the jumpsuit they wear is pink. So yeah, almost like as a punishment or to, uh, you know, take power away from them okay, in some yeah, sense. Right. You know, uh, I mean, I think it worked all right. It's a little bit controversial, you know, but that's that's a good example of if that works. I'm not going to get into whether or not it does or if it's ethical or whatever, but if that works, it works because of a social construct, you know, whereas, yeah. a, you know, beige room might be calming 
because of some innate, or orange and yellow may make you hungry because of an innate biological construct, something that's okay. that's there already. And the but, pink but wouldn't work. These... Go ahead. Well, so, so like these social constructs and these um, social associations with colors, um, don't you think that they probably have some relationship with like an evolutionary or biological aspect of that color so like pink you know why why would we like what do you associate with pink and why would that be taking power away well because we associate it with uh feminine qualities right yeah it's like a girly color right yeah um but like but also like naturally you know uh flowers are pink um like sweet tasting fruits are pink um uh what like uh genital areas are pink well yeah i mean i think that's where i think that right there is nail on the head where the feminine part of it came from right you know uh lips nipples genitals right yeah exactly so well so so i guess what i'm saying is that yes it's a social construct but it has like a a, a biological or evolutionary um basis origin yeah, so you're saying, you're right, yeah, it does have an absolutely evolutionary origin, and then we have assigned meaning to it, because yeah. a lot of those people may interpret that meaning as, you know, less in control, weaker, etc. That's a social construct, whereas uh, the feminine quality of it maybe more biological you know what I mean because obviously women aren't less powerful they aren't less in control etc right um, or or another one that comes to mind is um, even proving that some of these color associations are social construct is uh, that you can look across cultures and see differences in these um, so one really obvious one is the color red um, in our culture is compared to Chinese culture. That's one that I think a lot. Um, and especially if you look at just graphic design or design in general in Chinese culture, I mean, red is everywhere. Right. In, in comparison to here. Um, does it hold, what, what sort of connotations does it hold in Chinese culture, would you say? I mean, here we think of red as like passion, you know, or 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 danger sometimes. Yeah, or danger, or yeah, or I mean, we think about like blood, right? I mean, blood seems like the most obvious, like natural, like hunter gatherer kind of association with red. Yeah, Um, but man, in Chinese culture, they use it everywhere. Like you know, at New Year's celebrations or at any kind of celebration, you're going to see. Hold on, my my wife is correcting me. Ting Ting, do you want to weigh yep. in on this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you want to talk into the microphone, <laughs> or should I just translate? <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, so what um, what Ting Ting is telling me is that um, to her, uh, there is a Chinese red. There's a specific color of red, and it's very different from blood red which mm-hmm. would be darker, heavier, have uh, totally different associations. Whereas, like, I mean, to me and you, Americans, I would I would argue that we don't really think about it like that. I mean, we don't necessarily make that distinction in reds. 
Yeah, well, what, so then when she thinks of Chinese Red, what does she think about? Like, Ting-ting. if you ask her, ask her to describe Chinese Red. Ting Ting, can you describe, can you just tell me what Chinese Red is like? So, so if you had, if you had one word to associate Chinese Red with, it would be happiness? Yeah, like, yeah, Happiness, prosperity, celebration. Also with um, like with weddings, um, it's such a huge color when uh, Ting Ting and I had our Chinese wedding. Um, basically everything was red. She wore a red dress. I wore red robes. Um, all the tablecloths were red. Um, all the decorations were red. Um, newlywed couples usually have uh, like a double happiness decoration that they put by their bed, um, which I guess is supposed to encourage uh, like marital bliss. Hmm. That's really cool. I'm really fascinated by her interpretation of Chinese red, though. I just never uh, thought of it. It makes so sense, you know, once you hear it, but I would have never thought of it. It's, it is something to be aware of, all of those, the, the color connotations across cultures but that one's really cool it's cool to think about yeah so yeah i think the takeaway um lesson is that different cultures have different takes on what colors mean yeah yeah so it's not necessarily inherent to humanity um there's also a social aspect i don't know i don't know i mean her her take on red is different than ours, but they still both are on emotions and and fairly strong emotions. You know. True. True. I don't know if green would be that for everyone. You know, or purple. I don't know if every culture would think of purple as an emotional color, but I would be willing to bet that most, if not all, of them view red as one. Yeah, I mean, I think we could run down um, the the names of the colors and really interpret each one as having specific cultural um, references. What I would be interested in is, so green for most people is like, you know, life. It's You, you could easily draw a corollary to just evolutionary... It, Green things are alive. You know, it means there's water. It means there's a chance to to survive in that area. But I'd be interested to see cultures that uh, live in places that are all but devoid of green plant life. I wonder what it would mean there, you know. And then I I think uh, another really strong cultural association in America with green is uh, wealth. I mean, money, just because our currency happens to be green color yeah often it's symbolically used to represent um money right whereas in another color you know maybe yellow would be more common to represent money yellow gold well so do we want to try to bring this full circle so we've talked about the physical component of color and light we've talked about the biological component of um our brains interpreting color. We've talked about um, the the social aspect of giving meaning to color. Um, what does this all 
mean in design and how can we apply what we know to create good color design? Well, so, I mean, I can, I can break down how I go about it. Um, everyone, you know, may have their own way and people obviously have their own preferences. And I, I try also to stay away since my pieces are physical items that, uh, you know, and this isn't to sound denigrating, to any other profession or thing, but like, you know, a website isn't meant to stay the same and be that way for 10 years or 20 years. But my piece yeah. of furniture needs to be exactly as it is for, you know, 50 years, 100 years, an indefinite amount of time. And so the things that I use sometimes to design may be different than you do because I can't follow uh, trends as closely I don't well I don't want to a lot of some people try but I don't want to follow a color trend because I know that my piece needs to last 50 years and that color trend is going to last three years you know exactly yeah but well I mean I do the, there's a basic trick that is a, a really good rule of thumb if anyone doesn't know it is just the color wheel um, if I ever have to work with colors you know the color wheel with multiple colors as your coordinating colors are just across from one another on the color wheel. Um, yeah, right. And I, uh, with primary colors, you know. And so I'll use that to sort of work off of, um, even if, say, I'm making a piece that's only going to be one color, I'll try to categorize the color of the room that the piece is going to go in um, and use that to sort of decide on the best color for the piece, you know, so uh, this this current piece, we'll use it as an example. Yeah, what are you working on? Uh, so, well, it's a, it's just a big, it's a big freestanding cabinet. I don't build uh, kitchen cabinets or anything anymore, but it's uh, four doors on top, four doors on the bottom, just a big freestanding cabinet. It has like uh, just basic frame panel doors with a French foot, which is just a a foot with a curve on the inside of it, a small tapered foot. Anyway, the piece is, the piece is going to be uh, painted. It's nine feet wide by eight feet tall. So it's a huge, a pretty big piece to paint one color. So right off the bat, especially because the doors are, the panels and the doors are flat, the main shapes are all like rectilinear flat shapes. So immediately that tells me pretty much want to avoid high gloss. It's just too large of an expanse. The center doors are covering a TV, which forced them to be 30 inches wide each. So you got two 30-inch wide doors, and on the outside there's two 24-inch wide doors, and that's a huge wide expanse. So right. a big high gloss expanse like that, to me, is usually going to be not it's just not going to look very good you know what i mean it can be, I guess, um, distracting i mean too much it can be distracting reflection. anybody touches it the fingerprint then is going to really just stand out it's okay. reflective that's a really large surface to be reflective in the in the middle of your room you know that's not intended to be you right. know having a big mirror is one thing because you place a mirror in a specific location to accomplish whatever task you want that mirror to accomplish. Some mirrors go in a room to make the room feel larger. So right. you're going to place it somewhere where a person's not going to be in direct eye contact with themselves all the time in that mirror because that'd be weird. 
But some mirrors serve the purpose of specifically that, to look at yourself. So you place them for that. So you don't want a random piece of furniture in your room sort of edging in on the function of a mirror, being really reflective, but you haven't placed it in one of those two places intentionally, you know? Um, so I went with, well, what I'm going with, I haven't, I haven't made the piece yet, but what I'm going with is a satin finish. Um, so it's, it's sort of a rubbed out finish. It's not matte or anything, but uh, it's going to be a deep, deep blue, just a really dark blue, um, almost like a navy. And with lacquer, one of the things is a lot of people use a gloss finish because they want the finish to feel deep or the color to feel like a deep color. Mm -hmm. But with lacquer, you can achieve that depth of color without a gloss, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so how many how many coats do you, are going to have to go into this? Um, it just depends paint. on how much tint is put in the lacquer base. I'm not really sure. Um, probably there will probably be three coats of the colored lacquer. There will be undercoats underneath that, you know, that are just to prep and smooth the surface and to prime it, uh, and those will be toned. But the the actual color coats will be two to three. It'd be sweet if two did it perfectly, but it may, there may be a third coat that's really heavily thinned down just to smooth everything out. Because for a satin, so I want a satin sheen, but that doesn't mean I don't want a perfectly flat and smooth surface. You know, the way that, uh, I guess one thing that we could, that, that we should hit on for anybody listening to this that wants to know anything about uh, color, and, and sheen for physical products is any coating finish, the sheen is, in modern coating finishes, the sheen is not determined by how smooth the finish is. It's not like polishing a rock. Um, what they do is all starts with high gloss. Any varnish, any film finish, a varnish, a lacquer, all of that, uh, it starts as high gloss just because it's clear. And so if you want semi-gloss or you want satin or a rubbed out look, what they do is add really fine uh, silica okay. to the finish and that silica refracts light right. in you know just different more obviously the more you uh, it breaks up the reflection of the light so it's not a high gloss has none of it so the light basically bounces straight back but also uniformly so you add a little bit of silica to get semi-gloss the light uh, bounces back somewhat erratically and for satin there's a lot of silica so the light bounces back very erratically that makes sense okay so, so it so doesn't look saying, as glossy but the surface is basically the same smoothness yeah exactly the same smoothness you know um, as as the other I mean you can even um, put uh, all satin and then you could coat it with a high gloss coat on top of the satin and it'll still look pretty much satin because right. the silica is right underneath the last high gloss coat. But um, that just gets back to the light thing. But as far as my decision, it was just that I didn't want a high gloss piece because it's too distracting. It's just an odd, it's too big of a piece to be high gloss, basically. Um, but and, and I so, wanted it. So why... Why the why the dark blue? Um, are you saying that 
um, you made that decision based on the the context, like the colors of the room or the light of the room? Yeah, um, the room gets a lot of light, so it could stand. It gets it has heat, one wall that's entirely made of windows, so it could stand a dark color, and the rest of the walls are um, kind of like a. I don't want to say beige, but I mean they're a beige. You know, it's like a tan, brownish color. Uh, just they're painted walls, you know. Okay. Um, and so I wanted something to have a lot of contrast from that, but still be elegant. And right. you never know. I don't know what couches they're gonna get next. You know, this matches the couches they've got in there, but it's not matched to them. You know. Um, I, I didn't want to get something if they changed couches, the piece is going to look weird. You know, that's not what I'm trying to do. I want a piece that can be put in any room later and still look great. Um, right. It's specifically to look the best in this room, but... Um, so I chose the blue because uh, I just felt that it was the color the room needed. The room was sort of lacking in a balanced color scheme. It got a lot of, like, really stark reds and other places in the house it's sort of an open floor plan there's a lot of light coming in there's that beige and a blue a really dark blue seemed like a way to get a really elegant color in there um, and then also the client uh, the decision for the color also came about in conjunction with the decision for the hardware so the client really wanted I could mm -hmm. tell that she wanted something sort of glamorous mm -hmm. and she and Polished brass and various brass is pretty in style right now. It comes and goes, you know, but right now it's it's back pretty big. And she had picked out a lot of pictures that had brass hardware, uh, brass pulls, and some of them were a little more out there. I could tell that they weren't. They wouldn't look that. They may be in great pieces, but they wouldn't look good in her house and her room because the rest of the furniture she would pick in the future wasn't going to match it. Right. So I wanted to bring her, I wanted to give her something that, that was glamorous and elegant like she wanted, but wasn't over the top and wasn't something that would look out of place in her house. So I decided to go with uh, brass pulls and hinges. Well, I'll probably do hidden hinges actually, but the pulls are large. They're pretty what? large pulls. Water pools are those handles? Oh, sorry, yeah, just the handles. Um, we're actually going to make those too. You're going to make them? I yeah, but it, it'll be basically brass rod, and then it'll also have uh, some walnut at the tips. So it'll be polished brass and walnut for the handles, and then on top of the blue painted cabinet. So I knew that the brass would look best in maybe not a fully gloss polish, you know, um, but it's pretty shiny no matter how you polish it. So I wanted there to be some contrast between, even I like contrast in the room, but also like contrast just in the within a piece. Um, and so the brass is going to look shiny no matter what, really shiny, you know. And so I wanted the piece to be uh, of a contrasting color to the brass, which dark blue is. Um, you know, if you had to place brass on the color scale, it would fall probably right across from just primary blue. Um, so the dark blue so, seemed like so it me, would go. I go mean, ahead. Br brass is pretty much a gold color, right? I mean, it's a like a really yeah. yellowy, yeah, yeah, yellowish color. Yeah. 
Um, and so, but a, a royal blue piece obviously wouldn't look, it'd just be too much. It looked like it was for a boy's room or something. Mm-hmm. So then to make it elegant, I just toned down the blue because it was across the wheel from the brass. So I toned down the blue to a really, really dark blue. Uh, we'll polish the brass, so the brass will be shiny, the blue will be satin. So there's contrast both in the color and in the sheen of each color, does that make sense? So so I think another, so just like a, a purely uh, color-based analysis of this piece, um, I would also say about these color, well, the three colors you're using, because you're going to use um, just varnished walnut, like very small brown accents. Like dark yeah, except um, it, I'm just going to, since the pieces are so small, you know, I can select and cut out of specific spots in the board, so it'll be very dark brown. Okay, yeah. so you ha- mm-hmm. so like very dark, almost black brown um, brass, which is uh, like yellow, orange, but very desaturated, like, like very um, low in lightness. And then a dark navy blue. So, so all three of these colors have very low lightness, um, very low. Uh, I guess they would have like low chroma and low lightness. I mean, they're all pretty desaturated, which makes for like a classy look. I mean, imagine if you oh, okay. right. like like amped up the saturation in all those colors. So, like instead of um, like a instead of a dark gold color for the polished brass that were like bright yellow orange and instead of like a dark navy uh for the the main part of the piece it were like a bright blue and instead of uh dark brown it were like bright orange right yeah Um, and yeah that's a good way to put it i I, uh you know and some of that is just instinctive to me because i don't like those the the brighter shades of those things but that's Mm -hmm. From like a practical standpoint, a lot of what I end up doing is that taking a client's idea and like make it refining it to where it's elegant. Because the rough ideas will be, and these are for commission pieces, not for my pieces, obviously. But working with clients is a large part of what anybody's going to have to do for making products. But taking their idea and then refining it to be elegant because they don't they aren't visual thinkers usually and they have they know what they want but that doesn't mean you give them exactly what they said they wanted because it's not going to look good so i just have to refine that down and the way you described it is probably better than the way i described it. is it i took each one of the things she liked you know and found a may, way to make them cohesive and elegant looking you know by bringing them down in tone or shade or sheen Right. Yeah, I, I think so. And and um, going back to your idea that, I mean, this piece is going to have a life of, I mean, minimum 50 years. I mean, yeah. I imagine it could be like how old, I mean, there are, there are cabinets like this that are hundreds of years old. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, you can't ever tell now, um, especially with a cabinet, you can't tell if people are going to keep it. But when I make a uh, display cabinet or a table, you know, that's like, you know, that piece is going to be there for 50, a hundred years, but I would hope this piece is also, you know. So, so is this, let, let me just ask, is this the first project you've worked with this client on? Yeah. With this client it is. Okay. Yeah. So that, that makes sense. Um, it, I mean, as a designer, it just takes time to establish uh, trust in that relationship. So, 
um, often I find that uh, the second design project that I do for a client um, will go a whole lot smoother because they've already been through the whole process with you and they they trust you that you're going to deliver a, a good right product. yeah my, my other my more repeat clients you know are yeah you're right it's about the second piece you know and then for the uh, clients that I've done more than two it's it really gets to a point where it's almost like I want a table you know and then just tell me how much it's going to cost and then bring it to me when it's done they just yeah yeah the that's trust is already get so to deep. that point yeah oh yeah i mean that's like a dream if every client was like that i mean this would be you know. but it's not a big deal you know that's how people you just got to understand that they're not they aren't bad people they aren't it's just not their job you know? yeah and also um people want to feel uh personal ownership of a product right yeah i mean they want to they want to be involved somehow I mean, yeah. not everyone, but most people, when they're commissioning a designer to produce something for them, they, I mean, especially the first time working with, with that designer, they want to um, be involved. They want to, you know, have the final decision on a lot of the choices, um, at least until that trust is established. Yeah, and you know, now that design is sort of temporarily just in the limelight, in every way you know there's every station on TV has some design show or competition design blogs are big just design is experiencing a real awareness you know in the public consciousness right now so it really everyone wants to feel like a designer they see everybody doing it on TV and it looks really easy so everybody wants <laughs> to feel like a designer too um, and so you just gotta kind of go with that a little bit and help guide you know sort of guide them into what what makes a design good take their their rough raw idea and and just guide them in the right direction yeah i i think they want to feel like a designer but what they actually are is more like an advent inventor yeah i mean yeah. they they want to come up with these ideas but i mean what a real designer is i think um any designer listening to this will agree is the person who is able to sift through these original ideas and actually execute yeah and to be honest you know the real the real design work as far as if you want to actually create a piece that is just a, a masterfully designed piece it's not going to be it's probably not going to be one of these one-off commissions like even I'm like this one is that I'm talking about and it's not I just get so uh, upset about a lot of these you know design blogs and stuff you'll see uh, you know people starting out and they want to be designers but every designer now in well everybody in every profession now wants to look like a master like day one they want to you know put out this image that they're just a, they've mastered the subject already and so they'll release all these pieces as far as furniture or whatever else that are their new designs and I'm like that's not that's like you should be your concept sketch you know they're just totally mm -hmm. unrefined a, a real masterwork design is something that you have the shape the basic everybody thinks of the design work is like figuring out the shape of the table, you know, how many legs, 
what angle are those legs at, how thick is the, or not how thick is the top, but just like how big is the table, what angle are the legs, how many legs, what shape. But that's like step one. You know, a lot of people's mistake is that they build from step one. They do that sketch, they're like, oh man, that's really cool, nobody's made a table with legs at that angle, you know, or that size, or that look, or in that shape. And then they make it, and they're like, oh, I designed this really awesome piece. Like, okay, but now you need to go back and fine-tune those details. You know, how thick is the tabletop in relation to the thickness of the legs? What's the size of the top in relation to uh, the square footage size that the base itself covers and then the visual space it takes up? You know, how do those things play together? Um, the tiny little edge details, radiuses, the color, the sheens in the color like we're talking about today, all of those things, that's what makes a really great design. Not, I made a table that's an octagon or a hexagon and it fits together with other hexagon tables. That's easy, right. you know. Um, that's just, that's the thing that burns me up these days. Everybody thinks that's step one and they're, they're done after step one. But. So, so it sounds like what you're, what you're hitting on is the importance of, of making to a designer. I mean, the, the importance of actually um, iterating on one idea and refining it over time. Yeah, I really, I do think that's the way to actually, uh, to actually get a design finished. You know, I think that too many people now draw it on paper, draw it in CAD, whatever, they build it and they think they're finished. It goes off to production or it goes, you know, whatever. But that, you're not done yet, you know. You should still keep, just keep whittling down until you get to the essence of what, what that design's about. Those tiny proportions, the, you know, the little things that you just sometimes don't catch the first time around. Right. I mean, there's that famous quote that, you know, the the design, the details are the design. What is, that's not the quote, but, um, do you know what I'm talking about? No, no idea. I don't know. I'll, like I'll look it up, but it's like, you know, yeah, you know, everybody, there's a saying that the design is in the details, but this quote is like, the design isn't in the details, the details are the design, or something like that. Um, the details are not, wait. The details are not the details; they make the design. Char oh, a Ames. Oh, that's a names quote. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. The details go. are not the details; they make the design. There you go. Um, so what does that but mean? But anyway, so well, design, all, all design is is an aggregate of details. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're in a time period in design where everybody is not everybody, but you know, there's just so many people jumping in and wanting to do it that like you said, they all want to be inventors, not designers. That everybody's jumping in and they want to have a big flashy new shape or form and that's that's it. They're done. They think that the you know and that's great, that is cool, but they never then learn to do the tiny detail work of design. You know, I'm not saying one is bad. You've just got to become proficient in both. That's cool. Think up cool new shapes, cool new forms, but then refine the proportions and the feel of those forms, you know, until you've mastered that design.
have been listening to Makers Radio. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our website is www.makersradio.org. You can call our voicemail at 813-816-2537. Thanks to Modern Wonder for our outro music. <laughs>